Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Here today with Jim and Chris. So we begin by meditating together for a short period. Just to prepare ourselves to evoke in our mind a presence and awareness of our experiences as they are. To connect with our experience and pull ourselves out of abstract thought and conceptual thought. You can keep your mind on the six senses and the four satipatthana. Kaya, Vedana, Jitta, Dhamma. Kaya is the body, so we start by focusing on the movement of the body. And when we sit still with our eyes closed, there isn't much movement of the body. There's the sensation of sitting. So you can say to yourself, sitting, sitting. But we recommend people to focus on the stomach. When you breathe in, there's a movement in the stomach, a sensation of expanding, or in English we say rising. Like bread when it bread dough when it rises in the oven. And when it falls, when the breath goes out, the stomach falls, rising and then falling. So we just say to ourselves, rising, falling, not out loud. And you're not focused on the words. The words are just a means of reminding yourself. Hey, this is just an experience of rising, an experience of falling. Or an experience of expanding and an experience of collapsing. A mantra or word that you repeat to yourself like this is a integral part of a meditation practice. It focuses your attention on the object. People often use mantras to focus on an abstract or conceptual object, like a god or a, a, 
an object of focus like a candle flame or a color. But here we use it to focus on our experience. Find a name for an individual experience that's happening now and when you repeat that name to yourself, it focuses your attention objectively on the experience so that your thought process is not one of judgment or reaction, but of experience and acknowledgement, observation. And just say rising, falling. That's Gaya Vedana. Vedana refers to the quality of the experience, the objective quality that has nothing to do with how we judge it, but how we taste, how it tastes, sort of. And then specifically whether it's pleasant, painful, or neutral. So Vedana is the feeling of it, whether it's painful or pleasant or neutral. So some of our experiences are painful. You might feel pressure in the body, and then there's also, along with that pressure, some sort of pain, because the pressure is intense, and mentally there arises pain. It feels physical, but the physical is just the pressure. The, the pain is mental. Or some sensations are, are accompanied with pleasure. There's a, a pleasurable feeling arises with them. Many are just neutral. So there's a neutral feeling, sometimes a calm feeling. And so if these stand out to you, if there is a painful feeling, just say to yourself, pain, 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 until it goes away. It can be in some part of the body. It can be a headache in the head. It can be even a painful mental feeling accompanied by sadness or anger or whatever. And once it's gone, just go back to the rising falling. If you feel happy or pleasure, you can say happy, happy or pleasure, pleasure. And just stay with it until it goes away. Same if you feel calm. Just say calm, calm. And once it's gone, just go back to the rising, falling.
Another common object of awareness is thought. So your mind will often be distracted or caught up in thoughts about the past or future. Caught up by good thoughts, caught up by bad thoughts, caught up by all sorts of different kind of thought. Thoughts about all sorts of different things. But in the end, whether it's past or future, good or bad or whatever, it's still just a thought. So try and remind yourself of that. Just say thinking, thinking. Again, with the idea to create objectivity, keep you from getting caught up and reacting to the thought, suffering or stressing or being consumed and overwhelmed by the thought. So when we note our minds stay free from that sort of entanglement. Just say thinking, thinking. When you do that, the thought's probably gone already, so just go back to the rising, falling. We're not trying to stop our minds from thinking. Thoughts, like everything else, are just experiences. We're trying to change our attitude so that we don't need to control our experiences so that we don't need to keep the ones we like, cling to the ones we like, or repel the ones we don't like. So that we don't identify with or create stories about or narratives about our experiences. So that's jitta. Thoughts are jitta. Kaya vedana jitta. And last is dhamma. Dhamma is it's technically the teachings of the Buddha, but in the Satipatthana Sutta it encompasses only a small subset of the Buddha's teaching, and it appears to be those that are directly related to our practice. So starting with the hindrances. An important thing for us to note. 
something that's essential in the beginning, especially is uh, these five things which obstruct our progress that keep us from seeing clearly, prevent us from being happy or even at peace. They keep us reacting and getting caught up in our experiences. Liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt. These are just the simple, simple names for them, easy to remember. But like everything else, we try and change our attitude towards them. Because even the hindrances aren't really a problem, except when and if we perpetuate them, we feed them. Like everything else, we get caught up in them and react to them. So you perpetuate anger and you perpetuate desire. You get lost in drowsiness and distraction and doubt. So we try not to get lost in these things or caught up in them. When you like something, just say to yourself, liking, liking. And disliking, say disliking, disliking. You feel drowsy, say to yourself, drowsy, drowsy, or tired, tired. Any worry or restlessness, say worried, worried, distracted, restless. Any doubt or confusion, say doubting, doubting, confused, confused. And stay with it until it's gone and then go back to the rising, falling. And finally, you can focus on the senses, which is another another aspect of the Dhamma, Gaya Vedana, Jitta, Dhamma. The next group is the six senses, or one that's useful for meditation practice practically, noting seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling. When you see something with your eyes closed, you might see pictures, lights, colors. Just say seeing, seeing until they go away. They just take them as an object of awareness. 
not a distraction, but something to focus on, just to keep you from reacting or getting caught up in them. And to cultivate this clarity of mind that is just present with experiences rather than reacting to them. Hearing, if you hear sounds in the room around you or something in the mind like music or voices, just say hearing, hearing. Smelling, tasting, feeling, just note your experiences as they arise. When they're gone again, just go back to the rising, falling. The stomach makes a good base, so you always have something to come back to and wait for something else to arise. All right, so that's our meditation. Now we'll move into the next segment where we actually take questions and answers. So again, you're welcome to post questions in the chat. From here on, we'll uh, ask that the chat be used only for our questions. Anything else will be just removed. If you don't have questions, or once you've asked your question, just close your eyes again and we'll meditate together. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Do I need to look for the three characteristics intentionally during meditation? No. I mean, it's a comment. It's a question. It's an important question. It's a question that is asked again and from time to time. Like it's the wrong looking for something is the wrong behavior. It's like if you saw a tiger, 
and you went looking for its stripes, you'd probably miss them, because that's not the uh, attitude that you need in order to see the stripes. In order to see the stripes, you just have to look at the tiger, and you'll say, hey, hey this tiger has stripes. But if you go looking for them, it's not a perfect analogy, but in, in meditation, especially if you go looking for them, you're you're not actually you're not actually observing the object. If you want to understand the nature of something, you have to observe it. It's like. Um, you want to see how a tiger walks, for example, you just watch it and you'll see how it walks. If you want to see the strange characteristics, you don't have to go look, you, you know, go look, going looking for them isn't going to help you. Suppose you want to see how a tiger uh, hunts, for example. You can't go looking for it. You have to just sit and watch. And when, when the tiger hunts, you'll say, oh, that's how a tiger hunts. You have to wait for it to happen, you see. And you have to you have to be be waiting, be present. So we're creating this quality of mind that allows us to see the arising and ceasing of of objects. The other thing is that, like a behavior of a wild animal, they're not a thing that exists. You can't suppose you have a tiger and you say, "I want to see how a tiger runs." So you kill the tiger and dissect it and look for the running in the tiger. That's kind of the idea of looking for it. Of course, once you've done that, you'll never, ever, ever see the tiger running. You just have, or you take it and even in, into a lab, and you say, "Well, let's wait and see if it's going to uh, pounce on something or run at something." And it doesn't run because it's in the lab. It acts very unnatural. So rather than try, it's a reason why you can't try to control your practice. If you try to control your breath and say, "I'm just going to," If my breath is uncontrol is unstable, then I'll I'll never be calmed down. How can I see anything? So you try to control it. Well, once you start doing that, you'll never see the nature because it's not natural. You're controlling it. You know, you're you're intending for it to be a certain way, like uh, making it deep or, or smooth or something. You need to let the tiger go in the wild and observe it in its natural state. So we try not to interfere. We just we're not trying to change or fix our experiences. If you start doing that, you'll lose the nature. You'll never get to see your your true nature. That's why we need a specific quality of mind that is just observing. That's why the noting is important. I get very drowsy during evening meditation recently, and I'm not really returning to the breath. I'm just meandering around. When this happens, should I do standing meditation instead of sitting? You should just note distracted, distracted, and then return to the breath. Or drowsy, if you're drowsy, say drowsy. If it's drowsy to the point that you're nodding off, yes, standing can be quite useful. So yeah, that, that's a good thing to recommend is to do standing. It's um it's a problem of 
uh, intermittent meditation. If you undertake a, a um, regimen of meditation, and if you do intensive meditation especially, you'll find it goes away. It's a product often of our lives and the, the activities that we perform outside of meditation that are create create this basic imbalance in the mind that makes us drowsy. During meditation, I have trouble separating pain from the disliking of it. They feel one and the same. It's easier to separate my preference when, for example, eating food. Any guidance? Well, they're two very, very, very different things. You may notice them both, and often when you notice, by the time you notice the disliking, it's already gone because it's mental, and of course it's very fleeting. Mental states are, are very quick, but the physical lasts on. So by the time you're asking yourself, what's the difference, there's only one left, and you're just left focusing on the physical. Uh, it's kind of like chasing your tail. So when you recognize that you're disliking something, rather than looking for it or trying to catch it somehow, because by the time you're ready to be mindful, it's already gone. It's the next moment after you were disliking. You could never um, be present and mindful and disliking. It can't be present, or else you, if it is, mindfulness couldn't arise. It has to arise after you realize it was disliking. So the point of reminding yourself is changing your attitude towards it so that you don't feed it or react to it, let it trigger you into anger, rage, or so hatred, or so on. So just say angry once you recognize that you are, are angry. Just say angry without looking for it or trying to find it. And as for the physical, it's much more sort of um, extended in duration. And so that's easy to note. But be clear that the physical is just physical. If it's pain, just say pain, pain. What do we actually practice during meditation? I'm not quite sure what you mean by this question, but... Maybe you're just new to our tradition, and I'd recommend that you could read our booklet on how to meditate. And if you're interested in learning more, we have an at-home course that you can sign up for, where we meet once a week, one-on-one, -on -one, and I can guide you through the basics of how we practice. I mean, it's not really the kind of thing I can answer in depth on stream, um, the theory you can get from the booklet and the practical advice and direction you can get from the at-home course. So that's really the recommended way to go. With Satipatthana meditation, do we also see the Four Noble Truths? Absolutely. That's the ultimate goal. You start to see that your experiences are not worth clinging to and that's that's based around our experience of the three characteristics that's why our focus is so much on reminding ourselves of the three characteristics like when uh, we feel like our mind is chaotic and our experience is unpredictable 
and remind ourselves, hey, that's the that's the characteristic of impermanent. Otherwise, you 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 would not be able to be to face it. But as you face it, it becomes familiar to you, and you say, yeah, these realities are unpredictable, fleeting, momentary. This thing that I thought that I could make stable is just not stable. And you see that uh, those things you thought were satisfying or not satisfying, mostly because they're not stable, but also just because there's nothing positive about a pleasant experience. There's nothing intrinsically positive about it. It's just a feeling. and In fact, our attachment to it and liking of it is just a cause for more stress and suffering for no good reason. It doesn't make us a better person or a happier person, not in the long run. And seeing that we can't control the things that we thought we could control, realizing that trying to control only leads to more stress and tension and suffering. When you do that, that's the first noble truth. And, and as a result of seeing that way, the second noble truth, um, the, the act of the act, uh, the duty towards the second noble truth is accomplished, which is to abandon it. You abandon the clinging to it, the craving for it. As a result of abandoning the, the craving, sufferings, the suffering ceases. You no longer suffer from it. Because you no longer try to control or maintain or cling to it. Uh, and the practice itself is the the well, the preliminary path, but but through seeing clearly like that, there arises this moment where uh, the mind lets go and experiences freedom from suffering, which is the fourth noble truth. So satipatthana is really the essence or one way of describing sort of the catalyst for the arising of the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. If my senses are fallible, how can I be sure I'm seeing clearly? Um, so the idea that your senses are fallible is misleading. Uh, it's 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 an important question because it's often a criticism of first person observation, right? How could meditation be useful? Our senses are fallible, and that's uh, conflating two different aspects of experience. The experience itself is not fallible. Uh, it, it's not. Um, possible for it to be mis-experienced, uh, I guess. There's there's no possible possibility for um, mistake or or for wrongness. Let's say, it, but the interpretation of the experience is uh, separate from the actual experience. So when you see something. You can never be wrong about it. You can never be 
um, convinced or, or there, there can never arise an awareness that this experience is hearing, for example. Now, there are some people who have something called aphasia, I think it's called, where they they also smell or the senses get mixed up. But even those people, all that means is when you hear something, you also see something, or when you see something, you also hear something, or that sort of thing. You smell something, taste something when you see it, but the experiences are still distinct. The seeing part, the seeing experience is still seeing, even though it's accompanied by a... Uh, a taste sometimes, or a sound is accompanied by a sight, or so on. You can never be mistaken that seeing is seeing. It's it's sort of um, what Descartes was saying. I, I often bring up Descartes because he, as he, he's a Western example of someone who who talked about these things. That it's the one thing you really can't be wrong about. Seeing is only experienced as seeing. Now, what you see or what the seeing means, or the hearing, or the smelling, or the tasting, or the feeling, that is fallible. And that's a huge thing that we try to correct with the noting. It's why we remind ourselves. Um, it, but it's not a great question. I mean, it's a common question, but you have to change the idea of how can I be sure I'm seeing clearly? Because if you're seeing clearly, you are aware of this difference you you are seeing through the narrative that you give to yourself what you think about things how you interpret things the meaning you ascribe to them and so there's no room for doubt as to whether you're seeing clearly because you're seeing ah yeah look at this this is just a narrative this is just my idea this isn't actually what i'm experiencing or then you notice that ah this is seeing and you say well yeah there's there's uh, not much room for controversy there you, we could be plugged into a, a machine like The Matrix, that movie, but seeing would still be seeing. Hearing would still be hearing, no matter where it comes from. You can't be wrong about that. That's not fallible. So that's why we focus on a very limited number of things, because they're the only things we can be sure about. It's basically seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. That's our realm of of practice. Yes, that's what allows us to see clearly. Then we can see that everything else is just mental extrapolation, conceptualization, and you you learn to to um, weaken the hold of these things on our mind because you see that ah, they're not actually real. Is it good to note anicca if pain disappears after we stay with it for some time? It's not great. It's just your interpretation of it. Even though it's a proper interpretation, it's still just an interpretation. We want to focus on the experiences. Saying to yourself, anicca isn't going to make you see it again, right? You've already seen it. Uh, when you note that, it's... What? What are you noting? You're not noting any present reality. You're noting some uh, observation you made in the past. I mean, it's not terrible. 
because it's right. It's the right observation. It's just reaffirming that, but it's not really satipatthana. Again, vipassana isn't a practice. Vipassana is the result of the practice. Seeing clearly comes from mindfulness. So focus on mindfulness of your actual experiences. Anicca isn't the experience. It's the the lack of permanence of your experiences. So focus on the experiences and you'll just see, well, they're not permanent. If I take whatever interrupts rising falling as a new object, I can never see anything through. Even if I see through an object, despite other objects in my awareness, I still can't return to rising falling much. Please help. Well, just not distracted, distracted, that's common. But just always return back to the rising and falling. A big problem is getting frustrated. When you see that you just keep getting pulled away and you think, I wish I could just stay with the rising fall. And that kind of desire and frustration and so on is another part of the practice that you have to note. So just note wanting or frustration, but note distracted if your mind is not staying focused on one object. But what you're seeing is impermanent suffering and non-self, right? There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that experience. You're just seeing that your mind is caught up in ideas of permanent satisfaction and control, and you're realizing that it's not possible. You can't control your mind. You can't control your experience. They're unpredictable and unsatisfying. I quite often catch myself rehearsing conversations with others, constantly talking to people in my mind, which I can't stop. I note it, but can't find the right label for it. Any suggestions? Yeah, I mean, realizing that you can't stop it is a first off an important uh, realization. So you start to become aware that no matter what you do, it doesn't go away. And that's not the point of noting. In fact, the point of noting is to see that you're not in control. That, no matter what your desire is, if you're if you're objective about it, you realize you see that it's just going to do what it's going to do. Um, so you, rehearsing, I mean, you could even note something like rehearsing is not terrible. You can note thinking if it appears as a thought, as thoughts. If it appears as sounds like actual voices, you can note hearing. Uh, but you should also note the emotions because often it's accompanied by worried. If you're worried or afraid or desire if you if you are excited maybe you can say excited about what you're going to say note any uh, because uh, often the reasons for rehearsing are because of the emotions right they they usually wouldn't come or they they often are associated with feelings as well so just make sure you're noting those if they're there if not just note the experiences i mean eventually you're going to see that this is the mind the way of the mind it's chaotic and unpredictable it's just out of control like a wild animal you just can't control the mind and you shouldn't try to because that's just a cause for worry and stress and suffering and when you stop when you start to calm down and and just let it run its course it, it quiets down as well naturally
Why doesn't noting until an object goes away apply to the rising and falling of the stomach? Is this not different techniques for arbitrarily different objects, such as the rising falling and distractions from the rising falling? Is this the same person who keeps asking these questions in a different way? Um, I mean, I don't know what, I, I think the problem again is not the the content of the questions, but the quality of your mind, and you should be noting this worry or doubt or confusion or so on. Because it seems to be the same same question asked in different ways, and it's just overthinking things. I mean, we teach in a certain way, and well, if you don't agree with it, you probably want to go somewhere else or work on your attitude towards it. Uh, rather than the actual practice. The practice is quite simple, right? It's just noting. So if you're, even in this kind of very simple thing, you're trying to find complexity, then, well, that's the problem. Um, but, I mean, to technically answer your question, rising is momentary, so if you note it from beginning to end, you have noted it until it gone, it's gone away. And then falling, when it rise, when it falls, it has a beginning and end, and so yes, you've noted it until it goes away. I don't see what the issue is. Like, you, 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 uh, you, you note it when it's gone, and it's gone. I am constantly hemming and hawing about the practice. Is it better to just be confident in practicing? potentially somewhat incorrectly. How much forgiveness is there to the practice? It's better to note uh, whatever you mean by hemming and hawing, because well, what's the experience behind that? Are you doubting about it? Then just note doubting. If you're worried or confused, note that. Disliking or liking, note that. Does one note knowing or stay with the silent mind when achieved? Um, silent mind is probably an experience of calm or basadhi, which is tranquility, quietude. So you can just note quiet, quiet. If you feel calm, you can note calm, calm. If you like it, you can note liking, liking. When I meditate deeply, what I realize is that what I am is awareness, awareness of phenomena rising and falling. Can this be defined as belonging to me and myself? No, you haven't realized that. You've created that meaning behind the experience, and that's just a creation. It's just a mental construct. You, didn't, you don't realize it, you, you, you ascribe meaning. And that's an addition. The actual experience is just an experience. The adding of meaning is based on habit, is based on ideas, clinging often to self because it's pleasant to uh, feel uh, possessiveness, you know, me and mine, feel a sense of identity, we cling to it. Bhavatanha, who I am. It's unsettling to not have anything to cling to, and so we cling 
but it's just meaning making. Ahang, it's called ahangara, eye making, mamangara, my making. And we do it all the time with everything. So when you meditate deeply, you have to be conscious of as well, can often just mean states of calm or, or pleasure. So you should note them as well if you feel calm or quiet or pleasant. Um, but when you have this idea in, arise in the mind that this is me, this is mine, you should note it. You can't discard it. You just have to note it and see that, well, it's actually not real. It's just my narrative, the meaning-making I am conducting. Does Mahasi-style noting practice develop both concentration and insight simultaneously? Is this why there is no need to do extensive concentration practice? Like Samatha. Samatha doesn't mean concentration practice, it means tranquility practice. So the goal is to just quiet the mind and calm the mind. That's why it's called tranquility. Concentration is what comes from sila, so sila, samadhi, and panya, and they go in order. Vipassana is equivalent to panya, so they don't come technically at the same time, they come in order. But mindfulness is is really what leads to sila and samadhi and panya. So sila is when the mind is with the object, is refraining from the distractions of interpretation and judgment and so on, that's sila. As a result of that, the mind becomes focused, that's samadhi. And when the mind is focused, if it's focused on reality, it will see things clearly as they are. And that's called vipassana or panya, seeing clearly. Does stream entry or any attainment alter how one senses reality, such as changes in visual perception? or changes in how you hear sound? Maybe. I mean, see, the thing is that your phys your physical experiences will change to some extent. Your, your body can often become healthier because there's less stress and less um, negativity in the mind to to hurt, to make the body sick. And so as a result, your experience of things might be a little better. Um, but it's it's not really a huge, I mean, it's certainly not a great question. Like, does it really matter what the answer is? Um, unless you're hinting at the idea that um, the way you perceive things in terms of um, whether you get attached to them, because the the, the, the real issue is that you stop meaning making you stop with the i making and my making so experiences are just seen as they are if someone makes a loud noise you're much less likely to jump at it to be afraid of it because you're so present it's just an experience we we, we feel afraid when we're distracted and we immediately misconceive of some noise as some kind of danger right we, we create meaning immediately but if you're very mindful you don't create that meaning so you don't get scared by sounds, for example. Are there dangers to secular Buddhism, given it doesn't believe in rebirth, since escaping samsara is a reason Buddha taught the Dhamma? 
Well, there's not so much of a danger. I mean, the only danger, if it could be called a danger, is um, a lack of results, right? Because there'll be a lack of um, conviction or a lack of uh, intensity. Um, it's like the difference between exercising because you want to, uh, well, just for, because you've heard it's good, let's say. Suppose you've heard exercise is good for your health, and you say, okay, so for my health, I'm going to do some exercise. So you might exercise, you might not, but uh, you might not be all that vigilant about it or... Um, In, uh, keenly interested in it. But on the other hand, if you have a heart disease, for example, and you've you've had maybe heart surgery or something, and the doctor says, look, if you don't change your habits, you're not going to live through the year. You know, I can give you this medica medication, but you have to change your lifestyle or else you're just not going to survive. Or diabetes or something. And that person would be much more conscious of how they eat and how they exercise and much more concerned about it. Why? Because their um, appreciation of the dangers is much greater. Right? So a person who acknowledges and becomes conscious of the bigger picture is going to be much more conscious of the importance, the seriousness of the reality at hand than a person who uh, doesn't conceive or, or or doesn't acknowledge the bigger picture of being reborn again and again and having our actions actually have consequences beyond this life. There'll be less invested in it. Are other forms of Buddhism, such as Mahayana and Vajrayana, wrong view, or just another way of interpreting the truth? Well, it's hard to pin down what those words actually mean. Um, th those are just words, those things. So is Mahayana wrong view? No, Mahayana word, right? Um, and the meaning of the word is the the great vehicle. So, is the great vehicle wrong view? No, it could the, the great the great vehicle could be a concept associated with right view, or it could be a concept that is associated with wrong view. So, it isn't wrong or right view, but it is often a concept associated with one or the other. Vajrayana is the diamond vehicle. So, the word diamond vehicle is a word that might be associated with right view or it might be associated with wrong view. You might have a right view that incorporates that term or you might have a wrong view that incorporates that term, but the term itself is not right view or wrong view. It's not a view, right? So you have to... Uh, it, it's, I mean, it's just being pedantic, but it's important because they're just words and they can and are used in different ways by different people. So it's important that you 
focus on the actual views rather than, than saying, oh, you're Mahayana, you have wrong view. Or, oh, you're Theravada, you have right view, which, of course, is just as silly. If you're Theravada, do you have, that's interesting, but do you have right view or wrong view? If you're Mahayana, do you have right view or wrong view? What are your views? And then you can take it from there. It's important because we we get caught up in labels like this, like I am Theravada or I am Mahayana. That misses the actual point. The point is that, hey, this group of people are practicing wrong view. Oh, that's bad. Or, hey, these people are practicing right view. That's great. Is this person, do they, do they possess right view or do they possess wrong view? That's what's interesting. When the idea of pure awareness arises, and I note it as being not real, where do I go from there? Is there any goal in meditation? Well, the goal is kind of many levels. There's the goal that you should understand theoretically, and then there's the goal you should focus on practically. And basically, let's put it at that. There's two different kinds of goal. So that you should understand theoretically, the goal is freedom from suffering. It's the cessation of suffering, nibbana, freedom, and so on. Um, but practically, the, the goal is to be mindful. Right? The goal is to uh, have a, an objective awareness of things that f frees you from judgment and conceptualization and meaning-making. Because that goal, when accomplished, leads to an, another goal, which is to see clearly. And that goal, when accomplished, leads to another goal, which is letting go. And that goal leads to a, another goal, the final goal, which is freedom from suffering. So it's a chain reaction like that. Is practicing Tibetan visualization meditation helpful? Well, the problem with this question is I don't know what Tibetan visualization meditation is. Um, so putting aside that word, is practicing visualization meditation helpful? Uh, depends what kind of visualization meditation. The, the fact that it's visualization meditation um, doesn't yet provide enough information, though. Though technically, yes, it's it's the kind of thing that is helpful, but it does have to be done right. And it, it what, when what makes it wrong is going to depend on what else you add to it. So if you're visualizing something with a narrative. Like, let's visualize this to make us very angry would be a bad thing. Or if you visualize something intentionally that, that creates lust or attraction, that would be a bad thing. But if your visualization is as a means of focusing the mind and it's just a simple visualization of a simple object, then that's generally a very good thing. It's not a great thing, but it's a, a good um, basic practice that will calm your mind down and it'll help you if you then... Uh, use that quality of mind to focus on reality as opposed to visualization. The problem with any visualization is it's conceptual, and you'll never um, 
be able to use it to see clearly reality, because it's not reality, obviously, right? Do you recommend any particular suttas for practitioners to read? The Satipatthana Sutta and the commentary. There's a good sutta and commentary um, in this book called The Way of Mindfulness. It's an old book now, but it's a pretty good translation. and It's got a lot of the commentaries in it. So it gives you a bigger picture of what the Satipatthana practice is. Uh, but really, you can read so much of the Buddha's teaching, and it's so valuable. We do a study group every Saturday morning. We finished this morning. I think we're on sixty something. Uh, doing the Majim, we're studying the Majjhima Nikaya, one hundred and fifty-two teachings of the Buddha. Uh, you're welcome to join that. You can find information on our website. I think. I want to leave my ADHD medication, Ritalin, and it has been daunting. Should I attempt to stop abruptly and note my symptoms with meditation? I deeply fear not being able to get through work. You should talk to your doctor or find make sure you have a doctor who is uh, um, helpful and is not trying to keep you on the medication. You should talk to your doctor about ways that you can get off of it. It's not ideal, no matter what anyone says, it's not ideal to be on medication. Um, I don't know whether some people will have to be on medication their whole life. I can't say whether that's true or not, but it's not ideal, right? And so if your doctor, if you have a good doctor, they should be open to ways of helping you find better ways to live so that you don't need medication. I think there is a problem where people who could be off medication are kept on medication for two reasons. One, because the doctor thinks, has the idea that it's perfectly proper for a person to be on medication their whole life. There's no, there's no problem with it. I don't see anything wrong with it kind of thing. And the other one is that they can be lazy or, or not necessarily lazy, but um, not interested enough for whatever reason, could just be overworked, but they're not interested enough to help their patient to get off of it. And you have to make sure that your doctor isn't either of those, I think. I mean, my opinion, and of course I'm not a medical professional, but um, I can't tell you how to get off of it. I, 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 it really, there's, there's a lot of issues. I can be legally held responsible if I give that kind of advice. And I think it's, it's criminal or, or at least there's civil uh, repercussions in this society if I do that. So I can't. Um, but I think it's possible to find a doctor who can uh, give you a, a regimen to help you get off of it, and maybe um, certainly with mindfulness, uh, if if you undertake, say, if you do our at-home course or something, that you can find yourself able to get off of it. It's not uh, an easy path, but meditation in general is not an easy path, and that's not a problem, that's not a sign that there's something wrong. It's not something that should discourage you. Uh, try and note the fear, you know. When you're afraid of not being able to get through work, just note afraid, afraid. Make sure that that's not a, an, uh, that's not a, a hindrance. 
Um, but you have to see that along with the fear, there is a acknowledgement or there is a a thought process that has to be acknowledged that, yes, I may not be able to get through work if I go off this medication, so I just can't go off of it yet. But if I gradually, and so I guess my answer would be, I think probably you'd go off it gradually. But if I gradually go off of it and at the same time learn to have a better relationship with reality through meditation, I may very well be able to go off of it and get through work without trouble. Uh, and I, I mean, honestly, I have no doubt that that's possible. It absolutely is possible. Uh, barring any other major mental issues that you have, it's most likely that it's just, it's often just a lack of, of skill, which is nothing to say bad about you because we're just unskilled in this. These aren't skills that we were ever taught to develop. But you'll find that if you become more skillful and have a better relationship with reality, it's actually much less of a challenge than, than it might seem, much less daunting. At first it can seem quite daunting. There's just such a mountain to climb, it seems. But just stick with it and be patient, and you'll see it's much less of a boogeyman than you think. Until we've crossed to the hour, there's one more question we'd like to ask. Do you have time okay. to answer? Yep. Thank you. During meditation, I sometimes have an overwhelming feeling that I am disappearing to a point where my heart starts to race, and I feel a strong rush, which makes me stop out of fear. What should I do? You should dissect this. So there's several things happening here. Feelings are not overwhelming. Feelings are not intrinsically overwhelming. They're just feelings. So if you can get that, uh, get to that point where you see that, you, you, you will not become overwhelmed. So try and just note the feeling. Uh, feeling, feeling, the feeling that you're disappearing is just a feeling. Um, and and there's even more to it there because along with whatever the feeling is, which is just a feeling, there is the interpretation that you're disappearing. And that's an interpretation, that's a thought. So you have to know thinking, thinking. When you feel overwhelmed by something, well, overwhelmed is something you can note overwhelmed, but I would say it's probably more like fear. If you feel afraid, just note afraid, afraid, that's separate. Um... And then there's the strong, uh, the heart racing is just a feeling. You can say feeling, feeling. Uh, the strong rush is just a strong rush. Strong is an okay acknowledgement, but it doesn't have any meaning. Just because it's strong doesn't mean you have to do something to change it. So just again, just feeling, feeling. And the rush doesn't make you stop. The fear makes you stop, but that's sort of what you're saying anyway. So if you're not afraid, afraid, you'll be able to work through that because you'll start to see that, well, fear isn't a reason to do anything, including stop meditating. It's just fear. So you're experiencing complex experiences and placing an, a meaning on them. You're interpreting them as me disappearing, which I don't want. <laughs> I don't want to disappear. That would be, well, scary. What would happen if I disappeared? But that's just ideas. The ideas of you disappearing, it's not going to happen. If it were that easy, people would just enter into Nibbana, no problem. But um, you're just going to come back. There's always more coming back and again and again. Don't worry about that. But note the fear. These are just ideas and feelings. Just note them and when they're gone, I'll continue on to whatever comes next.
Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. All right. Thank you for your help. Thank you all for your questions. And uh, have a good week. Wish you all the best in your practice. Sadhu. Sadhu.